Hello, and my name's Craig Eason. I'm the editorial director and the owner of Fathom World, and I'm also host of the Aranax podcast, another one of the shipping podcasts that you can find around the world these days. But I've been invited into uh, KCC to talk to Engebret Dahm, who's here with me, about their environmental report that they published. And it's a great honour to be here. Thank you for letting me come in and have a chat with you, Engebret. But um, I know that in the first part of this um, episode, this two-part episode on your report, you were talking to, um, what's her name, Christina Korme from the Norwegian Ship Owners Association. And you were talking about how the combination carriers that you've got and the drive and the ambitions that you've got around these vessels and your push towards decarbonization, first efficiencies and decarbonization in the end. So I'm, I want to talk now a little bit more about the fuels. We're going to talk a little bit more about the fuels and that more sort of long-term strategy that you've got. You've got a number of um, we've got two different types of ships at the moment. And at some point, you're going to have to start renewing the ships, but you're also going to have to start thinking about what these demands for fuels are going to be. So what do you think are some of the key things that you need the outside world to do to help you with this transition that you've got to go through? Thank you, Craig. I think I think what the industry needs is better and more predictable uh, regulations. You need uh, regulations that can bridge part of the big price difference between today's fuels and the new type of fuels, because today the new fuels cost maybe three to four times what the current fuels cost. You may need regulations that can be mandatory in terms of use of new fuels, like EU's uh, EU fuel maritime, which is, requires a minimum blending of new type of fuels. You may need public support for front runners, like we intend to be, for funding part of the extra capex, or maybe even bridging part of the fuel difference. Uh, and, and then, of course, we need customers that are willing to, to spend money to reduce uh, emissions of the seaborne transportation. So these two are, these are quite critical because we are quite clear on that, you know, we as a pretty small company cannot succeed alone doing this uh, transition given the high cost, uh, both for the investments and for the fuel difference. I'm going to come on and ask you a little bit more about the relationship that you're going to have to have with your customers, with the uh, the companies that uh, you work with, whose cargoes you carry. But let, let's just go back to the regulation front for a second. We know that in July this year, we've got MEPC 80, and there's a lot of expectations. There's a lot of hope around the shipping industry about what's going to come out of that. We know that next year the um, emissions trading scheme in the European Union kicks off. We've just heard over the last week or two, as you just mentioned, the EU maritime um, rules that are going to make it compulsory for vessels coming in and out of Europe to have a percentage of uh, renewable fuels in there. Do you see two kind of distinct differences here between what's happening in Europe and what's happening on the international scene? Um, you've been vocal before and been critical of the slow pace of international regulations. So what do you want to see coming out of July? I think, you know, in, if you're concentrating on IMO, I think, you know, what's important is that uh, they, they decide on which type of what we call fiscal regulation will be there. I mean, uh, as, the, as it looks at the moment, it it will looks to be decided that there will be a 
uh, carbon tax, not I would call an emission trading scheme, not some other fancy schemes that has been discussed, you know, to establish just the fact that IMO will introduce a global carbon tax. I mean, that, that's quite important. And I guess probably that's the best we can expect, at least in, in that sense. Uh, and then maybe also some sort of a roadmap for how IMO will implement it and decide on the level of, of uh, taxes and hopefully a predictable step-up plan for how this can be a tax that actually can mean something. Because if it ends up with $5-10 per CO2, it's nice to have, but it doesn't really impact the how the industry is behaving. The, the, you're, you're right. I mean, the, the, the carbon price at the moment on the trading scheme in Europe is relatively low. It's been largely around the 80 euros, hmm. I think, a ton. So that isn't enough to incentivize when we look at the price differences and the energy differences between the fuels that are, you're going to have to make a decision about as, as well. But when you look at these incentives, these potential incentives, and you talk about a tax, I'm just reminded that um, shipping largely a few years ago was whatever happens, we don't want shipping to be a cash cow. We don't want to see the money taken out of the shipping industry through a tax and used elsewhere, whether it's um, in other some other sort of decarbonisation or in mitigation elsewhere. And there are proposals in the IMO at the moment about using the tax money to actually circulate back into the shipping industry to help with the R&D, to help with the development of these fuels. Is that something that you agree with? Is that how you'd like to see it? So the higher the tax the more that shipping could actually evolve its journey. I, I, I agree. I think in the industry needs support, and that could be a good funding to get things moving. But I think it's also, it's not critical really for the industry itself, whether 100% goes back to the industry, whether it's 50%. I think the fiscal incentives will drive change. And in my mind, that's in fact even the most important is to put a cost of carbon, meaning that you, you have a, a base to make your investments, either in new ships or in energy efficiency measures or in using the fuels, uh, and, and that, that creates change. You, you talked in the last episode with Christine about the fuel efficiencies, and these are still going to be used when we look at these new fuels because they're, be, um, they're going to still be relevant aren't they? You're still going to have to be efficient, even though you're, you've changed to a clean fuel. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if, if we disregard on a possible, uh, what we call uh, support schemes that could reduce the difference. I mean, starting up with, with like ammonia or methanol, maybe green ammonia, methanol, maybe is four times what the cost of, of uh, f- current fuel is. Even if you reduce that, it still would be an expensive fuel. And if you have a, a ships that are the most efficient possible in terms of trading, operation, and energy efficiency, you can make this step as as small as possible because you use less fuel and the extra cost will be less. So I think that efficiency is is really the, the starting point in our mind of this decarbonisation journey. You have to attack that first, at, especially now when there still are a lot of uncertainties regarding future fuels, regulations, availability, all these things that we may come back to. Now, your combination carriers spend a large part of the journey actually with cargo, not in ballast. The whole 
the whole concept that you've got is there's more time actually carrying cargo, so there's there's better work efficiency of the vessels. They have a short ballast point, and there are periods where you need to clean the tanks as well. So there's that there's that element. But when when you actually look at how you're going to use the fuels in the future, and you've got contracts of a freightment COAs with uh, your clients. Can you tell me about how mature those discussions are with your clients about getting them on your roadmap and getting them part of this? Because clearly, and it, you know, it's underlined in red in amongst a lot of ship owners, the cargo owners are going to have to be part of this journey. Yeah, and, and they have to. And of course, it's, I mean, looking back from when we presented our first environmental strategy in 2020, a lot has happened. Customers are demanding uh, emission reporting or themselves reporting uh, scope three emissions. So a lot of things have happened, but too few customers today are willing to actually pay for reduce higher freight to reduce emissions. But we have started up and we're extremely pleased that one of our main customers, so 32 the American miner and uh, aluminum company, uh, in, as part of a long-term contract we have with them for shipment of caustic soda into Australia, have been willing to to commit to a uh, what we call carbon emission adjustment factor, okay, which actually means that our emission performance is measured against the baseline, and if we are performing better than the baseline, we get higher freight. If we are performing worse than the baseline, we get lower freight. So actually, you get a carbon pricing into the into the the, the contract and the freight mechanism. And that is, and, and the intention or, or the requirement is that any money that we raise from that mechanism, we will use on investment in our ships, in energy efficiency measures. But I think it, the important thing is that you actually get, as I said, a, a price on carbon into the daily operation, the chartering decisions, the scheduling, and that will drive behavior and change. I'm, I'm not going to ask you about the actual amounts, because yeah. I know you wouldn't tell me anyway, yeah. Yeah. but... The, you've got a you've got a benchmark. Can you tell me at least what you set that benchmark alongside? How do you decide that benchmark, and and also whether you've got any discussions about how you strengthen that benchmark as you find that things get better? You have an agreement where that benchmark may change. Yeah. So so actually, in that contract, the Soft Thirty Two is a long term customer of ours that we had for. We have been doing shipping for them and their predecessors for. 30 years. So we have a long track record of data. So actually what we did, we put the baseline on our actual performance, historical performance over the last years. And then we are assuming a certain percentage improvement per year, assuming that the industry itself, I mean, all our competitors will, with the delivery of new builds, become gradually more efficient. So that is the, the mechanism that is there. And then of course there are, uh, I mean, we have a relationship that we will probably develop this mechanism as we go. We are we used the year to test it out, uh, and know we are know the money is on the table from both sides. I guess the first quarter we will actually have to pay soft thirty two money because we had to do some ballasts which we didn't intend to do. So it shows that it works. Uh, but it maybe we have to after the trialing we will have to adjust it as we go ahead in time. But important is the commitment from both sides to make it work. And just thinking a bit more long-term in the, in the future here, before we start talking about 
the actual, well, in, in a way, talking about the fuels, but I want to talk about the vessels here because you're going to have to renew your fleet hmm. in due time. I know you've got some new vessels that have come in, but all ship owners have a fleet renewal strategy. So you're going to have to look at fleet renewal or fleet expansion. I know that the you have um, got plans for growth, so it may be expansion as well. But my real question is about the, ne- the next generation of Clavinet's car- uh, carriers. What sort of decisions are you going to have to make now that will enable whatever you decide with your next buildings to still be viable for you as a company 20-odd years into the future because we got all of this uncertainty. So I'm interested to find out what you as a vessel operator and owner are going through right now to make sure that whatever you put on the water, maybe in five years' time or eight years' time, is still going to be valid, you know, 30 years into the future. And, and of course, it is it is a difficult choice. Of course, you know, ideally, with the idealism that we, we have yeah, and the targets we have, we would have loved to, f- to create the base for us to make the investments today that actually would make the ship zero emission capable at delivery. The, the, given uncertainty on which type of fuel, the, the given which will be the, the ideal fuel f- going forward for the industry, the, the uncertainties regarding the technicalities, you know, we still don't have, for instance, a class regulation for use of ammonia on ships. The engines are not ready. Um, so, so at, at where we are today and with, uh, with the customer support we see, we probably are not able to make the choice of making the ships fully capable of burning ammonia or, or methanol or even, you know, uh, LNG. But, so, so but, why not, but why not? Hmm. I'm seeing order books for methanol, hmm. you know, increasing. I can list about 80 vessels yep. and i spoke to man the uh, the engine maker who said well actually we're having discussions with another 120 so we could if that goes mm. well we could mm. see 200 methanol fueled vessels or dual fueled let's let's be honest mm. they're dual fueled yeah. vessels in the other but that, i mean it's probably not going to be that but it could be up to that but you're telling me that's not for you we're not saying it's not for us but we're saying that where we are at the stage we we believe that uh, it may be better to make the the necessary preparations to create the flexibility for, okay. for these ships to do a later retrofit, uh, while we in parallel try to work to get the things in order to take the, the decision. But of course, if you look through the list of the, the people that has the companies that have contracted, you see a high proportion of them are the big container liners, which also have a different customer setup with people like IKEA or, you know, that actually are willing to pay for lower carbon freight. Well, that goes back to the discussion about yeah. the, your cargo owners. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, and these are companies that are so immensely huge. They are willing to invest in suppliers of green methanol. They are willing to give, you know, 10 years, what we call take, off-take agreements for the fuel. We as a small company, where we are, we cannot do that. Meaning that if we, you are right. The, the engines are there. So basically the technical risk for installation of, of methanol on, on the ships are, are, are low. So I think the, the, the big uncertainty is when can you expect to get the green methanol to your mm. ships? And as we see, you know, there are no outlook of when that can happen. So that means that you put on board, was it six, seven million dollars or whatever the cost would be to make them 
methanol uh, capable from delivery without any outlook for when that fuel can be ready and be used. So your vessels, whenever you're going to order, more likely that they will, they, they will be methanol ready, potentially even possibly something of ammonia ready, not actually with the engines, but they'll have some of the pipe work ready. You, you will have designed where for ammonia the fuel tank may go. Yeah. Of course, you know, we're not that concerned about the class notation because you know there are many class notations for so-called ready ships. So rather we don't want to talk about this class notation because you know it's, I won't say it's a scam, but at least it's it's something that is doesn't create credibility around the process. So what we're going to do is to make everything what we can do uh, at the moment ready, which make it easier to make the next step, which means that the superstructure of the ship has to be built in a different way mm. in order to have space for the fuel tanks behind and after, so after the ship. You need to have the strength in the deck for the for the fuel tanks, which are pretty heavy. You need to make the stability and 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 other the strength of the ships to adapt to it. You may be have a space for this fuel preparation room for these type of, of fuels, the piping, uh, making tanks ready for methanol and the, fuel, the existing fuel tanks. There's something with the coating, something with the cofferdams around it. So there are a number of things that you will do that will cost you a number of million dollars, but which will make it so so much easier and both faster and less expensive to take the next step. And the thing is, when we talk to engine manufacturers, they're saying that whether you get a dual fuel engine delivered today, capable, whether you convert it to the latest stage, has no impact on the perform the engine's performance. Okay, so you can order the latest man of Attila or or yeah. um, WinGD vessel, yeah. put it into your ship and convert it at a later date once you've solved your fuel conundrum. Yeah. And you'll still get the same efficiency as if you put the engine. You do. Uh, but again, you know, don't misunderstand me, Craig. I mean, we would have loved to do it. But again, if you do uh, what you call uh, uh, evaluation based on facts and based on where we are, on regulations, customer support, fuel availability, technical issues and, and, and outstanding issues, I think, you know, from our side, where we are today, that is probably the most likely way we're going to go forward. And I also want to bring in uh, biofuels hmm. here because the, the, the way your, where your vessels run, they go to South America, for example. And I know that South America has put a lot of papers into the IMO, for example, and they're very pro the evolution of biofuels into the, the shipping industry as part of the strategic direction that the industry would go. So what's your thoughts about drop-in fuels, biofuels being dropped in and then increasing the amount of biofuels? I think it, it is a very viable avenue for the, for the shipping industry. And, and, and of course, at the moment, I mean, to be frank, th these fuels are mainly available in one single port in the world, and that's Rotterdam. And then, of course, there are some starting up in Fujaira, in the Emirates, in Singapore. Uh, and, and I think the potential is there to do it. And South America, as you say, has the potential, given that they have so much green feedstock. I mean, ethanol, for instance, that could be easily mixed into the blend, blended in, in maritime fuel and, and potentially also be used as, as a, I mean, if you have an engine that can, can uh, burn methanol, it can probably also burn ethanol. 
Uh, and so meaning that th this is very promising. And we have one of our contract parties. We just uh, announced a three-year contract with uh, Heisen, which is 44% uh, owned by Shell. And, and they are one of the biggest ethanol producers in, in uh, South America. And as we understand it, they have at least uh, an ambition over time to offer ethanol as a blend or as a, f a fuel for the maritime industry. And, and that is something we, of course, would have loved to work together with them to develop that. And, and at the moment, our, our ships can probably do blends of, uh, of uh, including ethanol. But of course, you need to have then an, um, a methanol uh, capable engine to burn the fuel on a daily well, basis. That, that was the other part of my, yeah. my question here I was coming to, is if you've got a vessel that's um, operating on a COA out of South America, for example, and you've decided to focus on that being able to do, have methanol or ethanol as a fuel, but then circumstances change and you place it on a Australia to um, Asia run, but there's suddenly, we can't do that because there's no methanol available there. Are, are you scared that fuel choices is going to lock you into geographical regions? Of course, you know, given that whatever you do, you will always make sure you have the flexibility by having a dual fuel engine. Just imagine the, the Finnish ferry companies that only went for LNG, and then suddenly, you know, the prices went uh, tripled or four times or five times. And they had to rebuild the ships. Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, um, I think keeping flexibility is important. And, but of course, if, if, uh, if the regulations are coming uh, and, and you build a ship for, with a certain fuel mix uh, intended and you shift the, the, the trade and that fuel is not available in other parts, that is a concern and it has to be studied. And that's part of what we are looking at, you know, when we make our evaluations, will the fuel be available? For the choice we make in our specific trades, it doesn't help if it, it's available in Rotterdam. If we are not, if we don't have our ships in Rotterdam. I mean, it's. Uh, but you, you mentioned also that uh, for this journey, you need the customers to be part of this discussion with you. It has to be collaborative with them. They have to be prepared, to basically, to put money on the table as part of this to either pay more freight or to be part of some sort of infrastructure development, whether it's working with the fuel story or, or whatever. What's going to happen for you then if that doesn't materialise? What's going to happen if the cargo owners are actually a lot more cautious than you hope and you realise you're going to have to do this alone? Are you going to have, you're going to, have to issue another environmental strategy in five years' time to say, well, actually, we're not getting what we wanted. We've had to down our ambitions a little bit. I think, you know, I think the starting point is, of course, that we, we are not masters of what's happening in this world. And, and, and what we only think we promise, I mean, is basically that we'll, we'll be transparent. We tell our stakeholders ex actually exactly how we look at the world and, and how it develops. So I think, you know, the base for what we are doing over the next years and the base for the whole strategy up to 2030, first of all, is actually efficiency. And that we will do on our own, irrespective of what happens. That means the new builds, the preparations for new fuels, the, the getting down the, uh, the fuel consumption per ton transported through efficiency gains, that's something we're going to do, whatever we do. But the fuel change, we are very open on that. That is dependent on, on support. And of course, we think that you know if 
because your question was more relating to the to the the charters, the customers. Yeah. So if we get regulations, of course, then the cost of the cost of the new fuels to some extent will be reflected in the market because that would be something that all ship owners and all charters will have to relate to. So then, you know, you get it indirectly and that will be, you know, will work good as well. But without, you know, regulations, without customer support, we all size some companies that will be limits what we can do while keeping up to what is our main purpose is to give returns to our shareholders. That's what we are here for. And then, of course, we are doing it as good as we can when it comes to delivering on 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 our everything which goes to environment, social responsibility, and 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 and, and that you know we have high ambitions for that. But you know, it's if it's not profitable, it's not sustainable. And I think that that it's so easy to forget because you know you can you can get you know get the Hayadol price from from uh, for for the best green company. But if you are not able to to earn your money and pay your salaries and your cost, you're 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 not there in five years. Then you can be get your price, but it doesn't help the world and it doesn't help your your stakeholders. And, and just going on that point, do you see this risk of regional regulations? We we've talked about what's happening in Europe, and that's fairly strong regulations. But there's talk also about other regulations in China, in the US. For example, do you envisage or do you fear, do you welcome a growing regionalization where those regional patchworks could reflect each other and be connected somewhere? Do you think they're going to be regional but two disparate, very disparate kind of regulations? And that's just going to make life very difficult for you. I think, you know, we are able to, to you know, to... Uh, comply with different type of regulations to be just like we do with, you know, different uh, SECA areas. And, but I think the good thing about the EU, uh, in, I mean, EU's inclusion of shipping into the ETS and possibly other new regulations is that it put a pressure on IMO. That's the most important thing to some extent. Uh, and if you get more, I mean, you, if you get, should you get US, which I, I don't know exactly how far it has progressed, and if you think about this anti-woke sentiment uh, in in American politics, um, I'm not certain how far it will develop over the next years. But um, but China has its uh, emission trading scheme modeled after Europe. Shipping is not yet there, but it could easily be included. So if you get some of these regional um, uh, regulations, that will be a, subst- a sufficient large part of the total volume of trade and shipping. You actually are there. Really, without IMO, and that's where IMO, the fear of IMO is that they lose their relevance because they're not able to create the global framework for shipping because they are just uh, going wild in in trying to find compromises between everything from small island states to uh, to big uh, superpowers. And a, a final question for you here. I was recently back on some ships and I was talking to the crews and I was interested about their interest in the industry and their thoughts about the future industry that they're going to be working in. I wasn't talking to them about autonomous ships or anything like that. I was talking to them about this whole decarbonisation and sustainability story and the new technologies that they're going to have to um, face because they're the ones at the, uh, at, the, at the front end of this industry to some extent. 
can you just, I don't know, can you share a little bit of light perhaps on the relationship that you have with your crews on your ships and any kind of thoughts you've got about how they play a role in the Clavenez future? I think, you know, firstly, the, the, the crew we have are supplied by our in-house ship manager, Clavenez Combination Carriers, that are part owners of the crewing agencies. And we have, uh, these are, you know, we believe it's a part of the company. They are, uh, we have a very high retention of officers. I mean, something around 95% as an average over many years. So, so they are an extremely important part for us to deliver on, on our targets. And what we see is that, uh, I mean, first of all, the new type of fuels that possibly come has to be safe. And of course, that is a concern regarding ammonia at the moment. We don't know how this regulation, how the, the safety uh, regulations will be around it, but it has to be safe. That's the first part of it. But the second thing is, of course, that it's going to be more complex uh, on board ships. We are going to su supply them with many new type of technologies for, for optimizing the operation of the ships, uh, many fuel efficiency measures. So, so what we are, so, so that means that you know we we are we have quite high ambitions on this digitization of the ships, and that is partly that you know we, of course, getting the data to shore, which. Uh, and and also help uh, help the crew with better data on board to take the right decisions, and and getting the real time data to make decisions early to adjust, and then I think an important part with respect to the crew is also to automate to reduce the the workload on of the crew in order for them to concentrate on optimizing the the ships operational ships and to utilize the, all the new type of equipment in the best possible way. Uh, so I think it. And then, of course, that needs, you know, training. It needs better follow-up from shore. And, of course, if you train, you invest in your crew. So you have to make sure you keep them with the high retention that we have shown over time and, and train them. And, 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 and I think that, that, that's why the crewing side is so critical for our success. And that's, uh, we are very committed to, to ensure that they, they perform uh, and 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 they are they they will stay with us in that journey. Engelbrecht, thank you very much for letting me come in and have a chat for you um, over this last hour. It's been great having a catch up and listen to your environmental report and see what's going on. And just a reminder: this is the second part of the episodes that they're pushing um, about the environmental report. You can listen to the first episode that was published a few days ago with Christine Cormer from the Norwegian Ship Owners Association. My name is Craig Eason. As I said, I'm the editor of Fathom World, and that ends today's episode. Thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for coming. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.